Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you. We've been on a fascinating journey this summer through a small Old Testament book. When we first nailed down our summer series, my initial concern was, how are we going to stretch this little book of Jonah to eight weeks? And here we are at the end of August, uh, ready to hand it over to Pastor Henry, who will be preaching next weekend. In the series, we touched on uh, several themes like running from God, God's miraculous deliverance, His power to reach the unlikeliest people, and His amazing grace that's extended to all. Today, we're going to wrap up this book with this closing message. This time, I want to welcome all of us here at Center Street Church. And those of us here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from our campus in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary, I also want to say hello to our online viewers as well. One of the famous villains in children's literature is a character created by Dr. Seuss named the Grinch. The Grinch's heart was uh, two sizes too small, and as a result, he's unable to let any love inside. That's why the Grinch is grumpy all the time. Well, Jonah the prophet bears a striking similarity to the Grinch. He suffered from a chronic lack of love, and his heart desperately needed expansion. As I shared with you last weekend, we cannot be too hard on Jonah without realizing there's a Jonah inside all of us. Jonah is not just a prophet who lived 2,800 years ago in a different context, but Jonah reminds us too much of ourselves. For it is easy to be recipients of God's amazing grace, but we are also commissioned to be dispensers of God's amazing grace. I want to pick up where I left last weekend. Jonah had reluctantly brought God's message to Nineveh, and it is astonishing that the people of Nineveh actually responded to Jonah's message all the way from the king to the cattle. Jonah became the instrument through whom God has orchestrated one of the greatest revivals in history. But Jonah wasn't thrilled by all these accomplishments. In fact, he's fuming at God for extending forgiveness to Nineveh, the political enemies of his nation. He couldn't stand the sight of the Ninevites repenting of their sins and turning to God. So Jonah went outside of the city, built a small shelter for himself, and was hoping that the Ninevite repentance will be short-lived and they will get what they deserve, God's judgment. See, Jonah's heart was small, shriveled, and unmerciful, while God's heart is large and filled with compassion, love, and grace. So what we see here is a striking contrast between Jonah's heart and God's heart. And the book of Jonah gives us insight into the character of God like no other book in the Old Testament. You know, people have this notion that the God of the Old Testament is mean-spirited, angry, harsh, and seldom extends grace. Many conclude that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. It's like this mean God had a PR makeover and became a nice God. Well, that is absolutely not true. Both Testaments speak of the same God and His character attributes are unchanging. 
And the book of Jonah gives us a depiction of the heart of God and challenges us to demonstrate God's heart for our city. We are now going to read the final passage in the book of Jonah. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we read from Jonah chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Lord, we thank you for being so tender and gentle with a rebellious prophet. And thank you that uh, you are tender and gracious in your dealings with us, because we see that there is a Jonah in us. And we ask that you will do a deep work in us today, that you will give us a glimpse of your heart for our city, and you will help us to reflect that heart to those who do not know you. God, this is a difficult message, and I ask that you will give me the grace to be able to speak your word, your truth with boldness, to not hold anything back, that, Lord, ultimately your spirit will speak to us through your inspired word. For we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. When God called his prophets to deliver his message, they used object lessons. The prophets were quite dramatic and used communication techniques that gave life and vitality to their message. For instance, the prophet Hosea married a prostitute to signify God's love for Israel despite her unfaithfulness. The prophet Jeremiah bought a jar and broke it in front of the people to let them know God was going to break the nation because of their sin. The prophet Ezekiel shaved his head and his beard. He divided the hair into three equal parts. A third of the hair he burnt, another third of the hair he chopped with a sword, and the last third he scattered in the wind. And that was a symbolic way of saying a third of God's people will be burnt, a third will be attacked by the sword, and a third will be scattered. You know, I'm thankful God doesn't ask modern-day preachers to give such radical sermon illustrations because <laughs> I like hair on my head. The prophets in the Bible were experts in using visual illustrations to get their message across to the people. Now, the prophet Jonah was going to get a taste of his own medicine, and God was going to use an object lesson to get his message across to Jonah. 
Jonah was still hoping secretly for Nineveh's destruction. So he makes this small shelter outside of the city, sits on the front rows waiting for fiery sulfur to fall from heaven and wipe Nineveh off the map. Now look at what happened next. Verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. The word provided can also be translated as appointed. It's the same word used of the fish back in chapter 2. God appointed a fish to deliver Jonah from his rebellion, and now he appoints a plant to deliver Jonah from his seething anger. Now, we don't know what kind of plant this was. The writer of the book of Jonah is not a botanical expert. He's not interested in the species of the plant. People have called it a vine, a gourd, or a castor oil plant. All we know is this plant was leafy, and it provided shade from the hot sun. So even though Jonah had built a shelter, it did not sufficiently shield him, and this plant offered much-needed comfort from the sun. So this is clearly an expression of God's grace to Jonah. Now, when you're under the shade, that is symbolic of being under God's protection. Several Bible verses speak in these terms, like, for example, Psalm 121.5, the Lord watches over you, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. So Jonah relished the comfort of the plant and God's protection over his life. And you find these incredible words, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. Did you notice this is the very first time in the book Jonah is happy? A literal translation of the words would be, Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great joy. You can see the distinct emphasis. The Grinch is smiling. When Jonah realized that he is an object of God's grace, it brought him great joy. But soon, God was going to withdraw that grace from Jonah. Look at the next verse. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. The word for withered literally means destroyed. It is a strong word, a military term signifying an army attacking. Earlier, God had a conversation with a fish. He now has a conversation with a worm. Wormy, I'm going to make you really hungry. You will have an unexplainable, voracious appetite. Just chomp down the entire plant. The salad bar is open. And the big hungry caterpillar eats and eats and eats. And look at what happens next. God is going to remove his grace from Jonah and give him a taste of judgment. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So when this plant withered, it exposed Jonah to the hot Middle Eastern sun. Now, if there was a time Jonah needed the plant, this was it. And to make matters worse, God tightens the screws on Jonah. He appointed a scorching wind to blow from the east. For the third time in our passage, we see the word appointed. 
Such kind of wind is common in parts of Africa and the Middle East. It's called a Sirocco, and they blow from the desert. And these hot winds reduce the humidity to zero and causes the temperature to go up to 15 to 20 degrees in a matter of minutes. Jonah is being exposed to absolute unmitigated justice. The sun blazed on Jonah's head. Interestingly, it's the same word for the worm chomping the plant. Just as the worm attacked the plant like an army, the sun now attacks Jonah's head. See, God is treating Jonah precisely the way Jonah wanted God to treat his enemies. Now, I've been in 48-degree heat. I've seen people getting heat stroke. I can relate with Jonah. He must have been so thirsty, so dehydrated, that he thinks he's going to die. Jonah had wished for God's justice and punishment for Nineveh. Now, through this experience, God gives Jonah a glimpse of the severity of his judgment. And as Jonah is languishing in the heat, God once again appears to Jonah and asks yet another question. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah snaps back at God. You know, the words here may have the force of an expletive. It's like he's saying, I have right to be angry. I'm damn angry. I'm angry enough to die. You know, it's hard to imagine Jonah is actually talking to God. And God is being so patient with Jonah. Now look at how God clinches the whole argument in verse 10. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah had compassion on the plant because it offered him shade. And God is saying, Jonah, you, you didn't do anything to earn this plan. You didn't toil over it. It was not your creation. The only reason you're concerned about this plant is because of self-interest. The plant offered you shade. Jonah, you're more interested in your comfort than people who are perishing who I care about. And the whole point of this object lesson was to show Jonah his messed up priorities. Look at the last verse in this book. We're going to spend some time in this verse. It is so profound. Verse 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Here in this single verse, we see the striking contrast in attitude between God and Jonah. Jonah had compassion on the plant. God had compassion on the people. All along, Jonah perceived Nineveh as wicked. And whenever we made reference to Nineveh in this series, we called it the sin city. But God called Nineveh a great city, not just once, but four times in this book. Wow. The word great means prominent or important. 
Nineveh was important to God. Now, could it be possible that God looks at things differently than we do? Look at what else God says. Should I not have concern for this great city? It's almost like God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, can I have your permission to be true to my character? The word for concern is a deep word. It has the connotation of the eye welling up with tears. We're not talking about just a little pity here, but a deep, heartfelt compassion. In the New Testament, Jesus had a similar experience recorded in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked at the crowds with people who had no one to guide them, he had compassion on them because they were helpless. Without a shepherd, a sheep would wander here and there, not knowing the dangers that are lurking around and will get totally lost. So Jesus was able to see through the facade at the real needs of people. The word for compassion is again evocative. It speaks of the internal organs. A modern way of saying would be Jesus was gutted. You know, when you watch the news channel, a scene of a bomb blast and a little girl with blood all over her crying in despair, you get a sick feeling in your stomach. That's the word picture for compassion. And if you look at the root word for compassion, it's Latin. It has two parts, come and passion. Come means together, and passion means to suffer. So compassion is suffering together. It is more than a feeling. It is an action word. So God does not look at the lost with scorn and anger, but he looks at them with eyes filled with deep compassion. He identifies with their pain, and he suffers with them. And all along, while we are so obsessed with people's sinful actions, God sees their helplessness. And look at what else God says about the people of Nineveh. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Now, what is that phrase? who cannot tell their right hand from their left mean. After all, these are not innocent people. They were bent on committing acts of wickedness and evil like a modern-day ISIS or Boko Haram. So some have concluded that God is making reference here to children below the age of accountability. If that is the case, then the 120,000 here is a reference to children, and that would make the entire population of Nineveh 600,000. But most scholars don't see this as a reference to children. God specifically says 120,000 people. The word used for people is Adam, which is the Hebrew word for humans. If God was speaking about kids, he would have used a different word. So in my opinion, God is looking at the evil adults of Nineveh and says, 
they do not know their left hand from their right. What does that mean? If you look at the Old Testament, God often warned Israel not to turn to the left or to the right and deviate from his law. You can see it stated repeatedly in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Joshua 1.7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. God's law and his special revelation to Israel was meant to guide their steps, what direction they needed to take, which way they needed to turn, where they needed to go. And when Jesus saw people as sheep without shepherds, it's because there was no one to offer them any spiritual leadership. So when you don't know your left hand from right, it means you have no spiritual guidance. Nineveh did not have access to God's special revelation. They had no privilege of being under the godly leadership of anybody. They were pagans who worshipped false gods and were caught in a cult. They had no one until this point to bring God's light and revelation. So that could be the meaning behind the phrase, they do not know their left hand from their right. They were spiritually ignorant. That expression could also mean people who have no moral compass. They were people who were lost, not knowing which way to go. They were in utter moral confusion. They were morally bankrupt. You know, when Jesus forgave those who crucified him on the cross, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The Roman soldiers inflicted pain on Jesus. The religious leaders mocked him, and the crowd reviled him. Jesus was surrounded by people with twisted minds. And yet, Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. It's the same idea. They don't know any better. They were ignorant of the immensity of the actions. They were so morally blind that they had no idea who they were putting on a cross. Now, we look at our world today that has lost its moral compass, and we use that as the very reason to condemn people, but God sees that as the very reason to have compassion on them. So God looked at the Ninevites as people who were harassed, helpless, and lost, and it aroused deep feelings of compassion. Jonah wanted 120,000 people to be destroyed. But from God's point of view, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now here's the irony. Jonah was concerned about a plant and was flippant in his attitude to people. But God's deep concern was for the entire population of the city. As majestic as a plant or tree may be, it is nothing compared to human life, the most stunning, beautiful, and precious of all of God's creation. Think about this. Think about this. We marvel at hills, trees, 
animals. We turn nature into an idol, and we forget to see the stunning beauty that is in humans, the crown of God's creation. Now, summertime is a time for hikes, enjoying the lakes, rivers, waterfalls, and the natural beauty of Canada. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that is wrong, not at all. In fact, nature is beautiful. It is part of God's creation. It reflects His splendor. But what I am saying is, it is easy to be spellbound by the majestic mountains and lakes, but when was the last time you looked at a human being and were simply in awe? When was the last time you were in a sea train filled with people or a shopping mall crowded and you said, look, I am surrounded by such beauty? For there is nothing more complex, intricate, mysterious, and breathtaking than a human life. Let's not forget this. We are the most beautiful part of God's creation because we are made in God's image. God looks at things differently. He looked at the wicked, sinful city of Nineveh and called them great. He had compassion on them, even though they had lost their moral compass. He saw them as people made in his own image, having inherent worth. Now, there are tremendous implications here for us. If that is how God sees the lost in our city. Here's a warning for all of us well-meaning Christians. There's a brand of Christianity that is just angry with the sinful world and rails against the evils of our time. That is a Christianity without grace. Whenever we condemn sin without compassion, we miss out on the heart of God. Now think of the sin in our society that you cannot tolerate. If you're just demonstrating righteous anger and no heartfelt compassion, then you are being a Jonah. You're not fully representing the heart of God. Now I'm not downplaying judgment or accountability, not at all. Judgment is coming. And people are accountable for their actions. The same city of Nineveh, in less than 100 years, got destroyed because the next generation went back to its old ways. We don't have to make light of the impending judgment that awaits people who refuse to repent. But I'm urging us to speak the truth in love and grace, with gentleness and respect. The English church leader, Robert W. Dale, once said, the only man I can listen to preaching on hell is D.L. Moody, because I have never heard him talk about it without breaking down and weeping. We cannot flippantly speak of God's judgment. We need to break down and weep. Now we come to the most important question. How does God view the Ninevites of our modern day? How does he view the lost in our city? 
So you know we have the Calgary Pride Festival happening in our city, and we see rainbow flags everywhere. When you watch a pride parade on the news, what is your first reaction? Just answer yourselves honestly. More importantly, how does God view the LGBTQ community? God doesn't condone their behavior. The Bible does not support their lifestyle. It's sinful and it clearly goes against God's revelation in the Bible. There's no compromising what has been so clearly revealed in God's Word. It is a tragedy when we allow our culture to influence our understanding of the Bible rather than the Bible influencing our culture. But guess what? The Bible also says we all, we all have fallen short of God's standards, every one of us. So that means we are not morally better off than the most vocal LGBTQ activist. You know, while we are hung up on this particular community's sins, God looks at their heart their brokenness and pain, the trauma of being different. And he sees lost individuals who cannot discern their right hand from their left, confused and struggling in understanding their own identity. God sees their heartbreaks and sorrows, their dreams and aspirations, and their soul cravings that can be satisfied in Jesus alone. An article in the Focus on the Family website sums it so well. As Christians, we don't want to define people by their attractions or struggle. We should look beyond homosexuality to see a person as a sacred human being created in the image of God. Being straight or being gay may be the way the culture likes to label people. However, it's not how God determines our worth or identity. God bases our worth on His unchanging, unfailing, eternal love for us. Now, have we as Christians communicated this message to our world? Well, since I'm on a roll, let me get a little more controversial. Is that okay? <laughs> and if you're ticked off by what I'm saying, you're welcome to email Jesus and express your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, apparently they've created a website called MailJesus.com where you can send an email to Jesus. I'm not kidding, it's true. I even tried, it worked. <laughs> Although I haven't received a reply yet. <laughs> so let me ask you, how does God view Muslim terrorists? I'll tell you how we view them. We view them with hatred and despise not just their actions, but despise the person. And that is why some of us have a bias against the entire Muslim community. But when God looks at an Islamic terrorist, he sees a confused individual who has been brainwashed by a deceptive ideology that has made this person believe that the only way they can get to heaven is by blowing their own bodies and taking lives. And God's heart breaks because in most cases, 
No one has taken the time to share with them the love of Jesus. His plan of salvation, this better story that you don't need to kill yourself in order to go to heaven, but Jesus died in order for you to be accepted by God. But the problem is we played it so safe. We have kept Jesus to ourselves and didn't bother to share him with these people. What choice have they had? If you were raised where they were raised and exposed to hatred and evil, they had been exposed to generation after generation. Would you and I turn out any different? And just in case you don't know, our Bible says, Jesus loves the whole world. That includes all Muslims. He died for every one of them. He commends their sincerity, their zeal, and their efforts to connect with God. And he wants to open their eyes and expose them to the grace of Jesus Christ that is freely available. See, that is why stories are abounding all over the world of visions and dreams in the Muslim world. And God is taking the gospel to places where we cannot even send missionaries. But we need to tell Muslims in our own city, our brothers and sisters here, this remarkable story of salvation in Jesus Christ. We cannot keep Jesus to ourselves. And let me tell you, the greater our bias against the Muslim community, the less effective will be our ministry to them. How does God view people who are First Nations? The attitude of our society may be largely negative, but God sees them as dear and precious and appreciates and values their diversity. He sees the depth of their pain and their struggles and longs to embrace them in his arms. How does God view a sophisticated Canadian living his or her dream? They may look on the outside like they've got it all together. But if they have not put their faith in Christ, they are lost no matter how many possessions and comforts they have. And Jesus is gutted that the enemy has blinded their eyes and deluded them into thinking that pleasure and comfort are the most important things in life. And Jesus weeps over their lostness. I tell you, God even loves the telemarketers for crying out loud. <laughs> Those despising, irritating people who call you at odd hours and read a sales script. You know, in a Christian online discussion forum on how to respond to telemarketers, a person wrote this. When a telemarketer calls, I tell them, one moment I'll go get him, then I leave them waiting until they hang up. <laughs> they waste my time, I waste theirs. And if I'm bored, I might listen to their spiel and ask them lots of questions and tell them in the end, mommy will be home later and I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. <laughs> That's in a Christian discussion forum online. You know, we may see telemarketers as a nuisance and talk to them as less than humans. But God 
looks at them with an everlasting love. He sees their frustration when yet another person hangs up on them, when yet another person speaks discourteously. God sees them as individuals who are underpaid, who have a family, who are trying their best to pay their bills and make both ends meet. You know, if this sermon motivates you to change your tone in how you talk to telemarketers and call center agents, it's worth the time I put into it. <laughs> so how does God look at our city? I'll tell you what Jesus will say. And should I not have concern for this great city of Calgary, in which there are more than 1.2 million people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now we come to the conclusion. You can't help but notice the fact that the book of Jonah ends abruptly. And you wish there's a verse 12. Jonah finally realized his sinful attitude, his heart changed, and he lived happily ever after. Wouldn't that be a great ending? But it's not there. The book ends unexpectedly with the question, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many calves? We're supposed to laugh here, and it makes reference to calves, because the book of Jonah, as I said, is a comedy. Now, the important question is, why doesn't the book give us Jonah's response? We all wonder, did Jonah really get it? Did his heart change? Did he go back a transformed individual? A good story leaves you hanging. We don't know how Jonah responded. We don't know if his heart changed. But the point is not Jonah's response, for he is dead and gone. The question that the author of the book poses us is, did you get it? God is posing the same question to us. The focus shifts from Jonah and the spotlight is on us here in the year 2017 in Calgary at Center Street Church. How are you going to respond? God looks at Calgary, Airdrie, Cochrane, Chestermere, and he looks at his church and says, would you be my messengers who will bring my light to those who are in darkness? Would you be a shepherd for those who cannot discern their right hand from their left? Will you share with this great city the story of my great salvation? And here's the bottom line. Are you going to be like Jonah and run in the opposite direction? Or are you going to partner with God in accomplishing His mission for our city. You heard in our announcements today that this weekend we have ministry fair at Central Campus. Each of the ministries of our church represent the heart of God. Each of the ministries of our church have the potential to meet the diverse needs in our city. So when you serve in our children's ministry, you have the privilege of investing in children. Some of them don't even come from Christian homes. 
and you can teach them the ways of God and shape their lives. When you join a community group, you can partner with committed Christians and together be salt and light in your community, in the neighborhood where you live. When you serve in our special needs ministry, you're being a blessing and you bring encouragement and hope to families all across our city. When you serve here in this church building as an usher, greeter in the cafe, or be part of the team that produces our weekend worship services, you're playing a crucial part in introducing hundreds of people to Jesus right here in this place. When you financially support the work of our church, you're partnering with God in the work that He wants to do in our city and around the world. So the end of the service, as you walk out into the atrium, don't just walk past the tables, but prayerfully ask God how you can be involved in using your gifts and talents and partnering with Him in accomplishing His mission for our city. And the good thing is we don't have to convince God to save our city. That's what He longs to do. And all he needs is people who are saying, Lord, here I am. Use me to make a difference. We're going to close with a powerful song right now. So Becky and Darcy are going to lead us in that. And even as they sing, I want you to reflect prayerfully on what is your response to God's mission for our city. I'll come back and close this in prayer. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we close our time in prayer. Lord, we once again make that declaration in this place that our hope and salvation is in Christ alone. Lord, you are the hope of our city, of our nation, and of our every life. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace that reached out to us when we were so bent on going our own ways. Thank you for redeeming us, opening our eyes to the truth of who you are. Today, we are trophies of your grace, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We have hope, we have purpose, we have a calling, we have a reason to live. We pray today that the same amazing grace of God will reign upon our city. Our city that is broken by sin. Our city that is under the grips of the evil one. We pray that your grace will set people free. We pray the chains will be broken in the name of Jesus. We pray, O oh God, those who are held captives will be released and find the freedom and forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. So sweep through our city, sweep through our nation, that the nations will come to the worship of the one true God who is worthy of all our praise. And we pray that you will breathe your spirit on your church, on us, your people, that you will grant us a fresh anointing of your spirit and empower us, Lord, to be ambassadors of this good news, that wherever our lives will intersect, 
we will be able to share this news of salvation with those around us. We ask, Lord, for your blessings upon the ministries of our church. As we resume yet another ministry year, we ask, Lord, that you will use each of these ministries to be able to represent your heart, that we will see a great harvest in this ministry season. And we pray that as you commission us to reach our city, that we will walk in the path of obedience, that we will not run away, but we will surrender our lives to you so you can use us to make a difference for your glory and honor. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit, May rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, even as you go out, you know, stop by some of our ministry tables and ask God where He wants you to be involved. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.